A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, listener. Welcome to episode 242 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on your own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here, let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan himself, Mark Herleman, and with me like the master to any good apprentice, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hello, hello, hello! I am... I am here! And I only vaguely smell like baby food. Um, we just managed to get Cade to finally eat something other than something out of a bottle. And uh, he actually apparently likes... It's some kind of weird, like, tomato-slash-pasta-slash-whatever-like mush that comes in a little <laughs> packet that you can squeeze onto a spoon and he'll actually eat it when he won't eat friggin' fruits and vegetables from the little, you know, baby food containers. Um, but uh, he he also found it very lovely to put it on his fingers and uh, to to share that love with Dad. So um, I am here. Uh, you may you may hear me coughing. May find my voice a little bit weak this time because I've been coughing. Uh, as as I'm also now sitting within the aroma of pasta without the positivity of having ha- gotten the chance to eat pasta myself. <laughs> you wonder if Kretsch Masters had this issue, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know, you know, like if you, they're going to train these babies in the force once they're, they're taking them as their babies, right? I mean, are they teaching them force abilities? Like this is how to eat and not spit it back up. Use right? the force to keep your lips closed kind of thing. I mean, you know, you got to wonder, I mean, they're, Somewhere in that Jedi temple, there are some really, really messy rooms and some really frustrated caregivers until they <laughs> hand them off to Yoda. And Yoda's like, look, aren't they awesome? And they're like, yeah, uh-huh. You didn't have to <laughs> feed them for two years or whatever. Right. Wouldn't trade uh, it. And I'm very proud of him for doing that. But wow, it, that, that, took some, that took some effort to find something he would actually eat. No effort to get him to eat this. He was just like, mm, it's gone. But <laughs> the know. other stuff... I'm like, pears, apples, this stuff's good. I would eat this stuff. This is basically applesauce. He's like, nope, (laughs) screw that. I'm going to push that out with my tongue onto myself. Thank you very much. (laughs) Bring on the formula. But this stuff, yeah, I almost didn't even get this one because I didn't think he'd actually like it. I'm like, all right, guess we have a little little baby who's going to be into pasta in a few years. He's a little Italian waiting to get out. Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we discuss Claudia Gray's newest Del Rey novel, Master and Apprentice. 
Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Yeah, and usually we would start this with the the opening crawl, whether it's here or it's in our spoiler section. We start with the opening crawl. But actually, that's not how Claudia Gray starts this one. She starts this one, and that is Claudia Gray, same person behind Lost Stars and Bloodline and so forth, um, who's really done some great work in Star Wars previously. Um, mm-hmm. She does something different here, which is that she starts it out right before the A Long Time Ago in a Galaxy Far, Far Away page with a page that has a quote on it. Now, having a quote at the beginning of a Star Wars book is not necessarily unheard of. What is, at least in my experience, is that it's a quote from real life. It's not a quote from within the Star Wars universe. Uh, No, Star Wars is not real. Um, Although some people argue as if it is. (laughs) The quote is, Prophecy in dreams is possible through the illumination of the active intellect over our soul. And the person that this is quoted to, um, his full name, though the full name is not in the book, uh, is Abu al-Walid Muhammad ibn Ahmad ibn Rashid. Or Rashid. It's R-U-S-H-D is how it translates if you put it into a, a Latin alphabet. And this was an individual who basically lived in the 1100s, like the mid to late 1100s. And he believed in prophecy, but he lived in a time in which basically prophecy in uh, the Muslim world uh, was – the belief in it was starting to decline. But at the same time, you started to see – this is like – middle of the Middle Ages kind of time as we're getting towards the high Middle Ages and whatnot, um, mm-hmm. you start to see more of an interest in prophecy in the West, in Europe, in um, the area that is basically at this point uh, dominated by Catholic theology. Um, but before there actually was even um, a Catholic-Protestant split, uh, there had only been a Catholic um, Eastern Orthodox like Byzantine kind of split. So it's interesting that she's she's getting at this core concept of prophecy that'll be in this book throughout, but she's doing it in a way that uses a real-life person upon whom it seems one of our characters is named after because this person in the West was known as Averroes, A-V-V-E-R, excuse me, A-V-E-R-R-O-E-S, and we have Rael Averroes as a Jedi, uh, somewhat resistant to prophecy in this book. I found this really kind of a cool twist, but not something... I'd never have expected to see in a Star Wars book. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so spoiler-free thoughts. Um, Claudia Gray does it again, the end. Um, right? Hashtag was, Claudia Gray's the new Timothy Zahn. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was not looking forward to this book. I really right? wasn't. I was like, oh, goody. It's Obi-Wan Qui-Gon as a one-shot story. How are they going to do something as good as or better than what we already got with Jude Watson's uh, Jedi Apprentice series? I, I because we'd seen – now, we'd seen tons of Qui-Gon Obi-Wan. How are they going to make the relationship as impactful as we saw in that with the Melita Dan story arc and everything and Obi-Wan leaving and coming back? And there's so much to it in the whole um, conflict with Sanatos and, and the whole uh, former apprentice thing. I don't know. But you know what I want to see? I want to see something in this era with these two because there's an untold story in Star Wars right now. I really want to know. And that's Obi-Wan and Satine. What is this book not about? Obi-Wan and Satine. Yeah, um, I thought I thought that might have been the case surely, at one point. <laughs> yeah, surely that was what this was going to be. And as soon as I found out that it wasn't, 
my interest fell even more. But it was Claudia Gray, so I'm kind of sitting back going, I hope she does something cool with this because I know that she can. Mm -hmm. And what it turns out to be is this is a book that it was really, really good. It's a story where the, the actual events of the story lack a lot of galactic importance outside of something relating to Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and just their relationship and such. Yeah. Um, but a small cul-de-sac neighborhood in the galaxy. <laughs> yeah, a little, little small area. Um, but she handles the relationship between the two and others around them so well that you come out really feeling like you have a better grasp and a better appreciation for their relationship as we see it eventually, for instance, in The Phantom Menace. Um, uh, a great sense of Qui-Gon as a character in canon as opposed to in Legends because we haven't really got a whole lot beyond the films um, in canon for him. Not a whole lot for Obi-Wan either, but at least more because of later in life. It gives us some great moments. And this is another of these times where uh, the, the the aspect of how the story is told comes into play. So. Yeah. Remember, there are three different persons you could write in, right? There's first person, which is going to be um, like, I did this, I did that. It's the narrator is one of the individuals that are taking part, essentially. Um, they're telling the story. Then you have the second person, which is relatively rare, which is the you did this, you did that, you did this, which is kind of like what a lot of games are written in. And the old choose your own adventure books and such yeah, are a good yeah. example of, of that. And then third person is some narrator who's not one of the characters speaking about it, him, her, they, their, whatever. Um, but you can have a couple different versions of third person. You can have unlimited, uh, which is basically this omniscient narrator who knows everything and can speak to everything and every perspective, who isn't necessarily going to limit what is known to the characters in that scene. And then there's limited, which feels almost like it's heading towards first person uh, in the sense that it limits the amount of knowledge and the context of each individual scene and how the narration is written, even though yeah. the narration isn't a character, to what those characters know in their perceptions. So, like, if this was a third person limited book on the events right after 9-11, for instance, if it was – if you had a scene from an American perspective, it may be a perspective where the American um, – it's limited to what the Americans knew at the time about 9-11 and the attacks and who did it and why and everything um, and the confusion at the time um, and would refer to people in Al-Qaeda, for instance, as terrorists, as killers, as mass murderers. Whereas if you shift to another scene that's following, say, bin Laden or his ilk at the time, it'd be focusing on this from the perspective of what they knew as opposed to what the Americans knew. Um, and would probably refer to things as, uh, you know, the, the Al Qaeda members as freedom fighters or as martyrs or as uh, servants of God or whatever, right? Similar like what we got with the Yuuzhan Vong in the New Jedi Order when we would get Naminor's character point of view and then even uh, the War Master and stuff. Right. And the interesting thing is that in most that most of the time you can get sort of a weak version of third person limited where it limits the knowledge but doesn't change the terminology and the way that it describes a scene to fit the attitude of the individual involved. Mm -hmm. A stronger version actually does that, and that's what Claudia Gray does here. Uh, there are even instances where there are things that like in Imperial 501st or Imperial Commando 501st, it bothered mm -hmm. me how many times the same freaking conversations and thought processes went around and around in circles. Yeah. We were like, yeah, we got it. Here, <laughs> here, what you've got is such a well-crafted third-person limited approach that even though certain misgivings, for instance, come up for certain characters pretty often, perhaps more often than you would necessarily want it to from a general third-person perspective, 
you get the sense that this is something that is so much nagging at these characters' minds throughout the action that's happening that this is the natural flow of their thoughts that, yes, this kind of thing would keep coming up in these particular contexts. So even when something does repeat to remind the audience, it still feels natural to the way it's written. Um, this is one of the best examples of that third-person limited while still giving us the true flavor of the characterizations within the narration that I've seen in a very long time. Um, so for me, it was a fantastic read, and it gives us some changes to continuity, or at least some new versions of things in canon that hadn't quite been pinned down yet that are different than Legends. Mm -hmm. um, and it also gives us um, some new things. Um, that we never knew of for canon that we're finally getting some detail on, like, for instance, the full text of the Chosen One prophecy. So this winds up being something where I was not excited for it at all to start with, and it's not something of galactic importance, but I would yeah. still say it's probably one of the must-reads of the new story group canon. You know, I was in the same boat with the misgivings because like I, I same all the way around because Claudia Gray has delivered time and time again for me. When I've read her books, I've been pleasantly surprised and I was pleasantly surprised throughout this book. Um, I, you know, I kept thinking of Jude Watson's story, the, the differences, you know, I mean, in Jude Watson's Obi-Wan barely got out of the crash in time. He barely made it to being selected as a Padawan. So that kind of factored over his relationship with Qui-Gon early on in their relationship. Whereas this one, it starts off, he's 17. Like it was such a shift for me that at first, I'd say the first quarter of the book, I wasn't sure if I was liking some of the new tastes on things. You know, we get, we get new characters, uh, new chancellors and things like that introduced. I wasn't quite sure when the time place took place. Uh, but by the time I got halfway through it, I couldn't set the book down. And there were even pot parts in the book where I was completely baffled by the, the way that the direction of the character point of view was going. I thought certain other people were the quote unquote traitors in the midst kind of thing that, that we get going on throughout this. And when they finally get to that reveal, I was, I was like, Oh, like I was, I was as excited as I could get for game of Thrones. Like I was about to throw things around the room. I was so super excited yeah. about <laughs> yeah. So the twists in this one, there's a couple of twists that just have you going, wait, what? Right. And they make sense when you look back at it but at the moment you're like i did not see that coming i i was like quicksilver getting shot <laughs> right no exactly so so yeah i kept i kept thinking about that and then by the time i got to the end of the book everything was so masterfully done that i i came to love episode three when we're on mustafar and anakin's just catching on fire and obi-wan goes you are the chosen one anakin like i mean that came back to my mind and it broke my heart all over again thinking of how you know the relationship between qui-gon and obi-wan pushed obi-wan into that relationship with anakin and how close they were and what prophecy meant and i mean just the way that they talked about the ancient mystics and why the jedi walked away from those things and the way qui-gon was a believer and and the fact that qui-gon gets invited onto the council and how this is impacting everything about the relationship and qui-gon feels like they just weren't hitting it off i mean that really bothered me at first i was super pissed off about this but by the time the book was over I was in tears over the way that they came together. I mean, there, there's a moment where Qui-Gon explains to Obi-Wan why he keeps him in Form 1, which if you know anything from Revenge of the Sith novelization, Form 1 is like Obi-Wan's jam. That's why he was able to take out Grievous. So, I mean, the way that that played out and the way that Qui-Gon said, I mean, I was, I was tearing up, man. I was like, this is good. This is so dang good. 
Um, you know, and, and she drops a lot of really cool nuggets right out the gate too. I mean, she's mentioning about the Sith, uh, talking about the, you know, back in the days of legend, the Sith governed much of the galaxy. And I was just like, oh, what? throw away references, but yeah, we, but we knew that huge. though, right? We knew that though already because, and we're, you're kind of heading towards spoiler territory, I think. I, I guess um, I am. But we already, we already kind of knew that because what is, what does Sidious say in Revenge of the Sith? Once more, the Sith will rule the galaxy and we That's will have true. peace, right? Once more. So obviously it's happened before. That's true. That's true. And and the fact that we get to see, you know, them go to the uh, the archives and get the holocrons and their studying of the holocrons and the relationship between not just, you know, Jin and, and his Padawan, but when Jin was a Padawan and when Rail was a Padawan and who their master was and the way that those scenes play out. You know, I mean, I've complained in the past about having, you know, parts of the story set in the past and part in the present, but the way Claudia Gray did all the befores was glorious and then when we get to the end and there's an after scene like i was like well wait well oh and like i said that one hit hard man that i would definitely fall in the same camp with you where i feel like this has got to be a must read especially if you're a fan of obi-wan kenobi uh if you like qui-gon jinn you'll love this one too but for me that was definitely the thing i enjoyed the most was was getting this take on on obi-wan kenobi whereas at first I wasn't sure. I mean, you know, Jude Watson wrote a masterful set of kids books that were really great relationship. And you got to see a lot of the flaws of the Republic, not just of the Jedi. And whereas this book really gets into the nuances of what the Jedi mandate is, how they can work within that and the limitations of the mandate, which I, was way deeper than I was prepared for. I mean, there's a character, Rahara, who her whole plot was major and 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 later on when we find out it was major to Qui-Gon enough that he kept with a certain stance that he takes in the book and I mean the way that that Claudia Gray delivers on that time and time again just puts me in that hashtag Claudia Gray is the new Timothy Zahn I mean she has done for the new canon books in my opinion everything that Zahn ever did in the 90s with what he was able to do because she was able to take a canon that's been reboot and in a few short series of books has given us this great window into things. And the way she gets the characters just makes them come alive. I mean, we haven't got to see a lot of these characters return, but man, that's, that's what I want next. I want to see more return characters from Claudia Gray. I want her to start doing that, that Zon world building where she has a couple favorites. I mean, rail would be a character I would love to see come back. And I mean, honestly, I felt like when we get to the end for that character, that character went in a direction that I was not anticipating. I was really, I was, I was fist pumping a lot in this book, Nate. I was really excited and I was not expecting it. I was like you, not quite sure if I was going to enjoy it. And then, like I said, that first quarter of the book in, I kept comparing it a lot to the other book and I wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy it. But again, it shifts so hard by the time you get to halfway through that you're just like, I can't put this down. I got to know. And then I'd say about the, the three fourths of the way through, I, I probably blazed through that in like a half hour because I could not set the book down at that point. I was, and I haven't been there since New Jedi Order. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. It is a time of peace. The Galactic Republic, which has governed for thousands of years, has provided prosperity to many worlds and opportunity to most. Only a few shadows of conflict darken the galaxy, 
and these are handled by the Jedi Knights, the guardians of peace and justice throughout the Republic. One of those conflicts arises on the planet Teth, a source of corruption that threatens many nearby systems. The Jedi Council sends Qui-Gon Jinn and his young Padawan to investigate, but the criminal element on Teth has chosen not to cooperate. Dun-dun-dun! And we have the first instance of something that maybe we should get out of the way as sort of the elephants in the room, the banthas in the room, mm-hmm. which are inconsistencies or changes chronologically and continuity-wise compared to what we either expected or knew from Legends or even knew from canon. Um, the Republic has stood for thousands of years. Tell that to Palpatine in the prequels. Because mm-hmm. according to Palpatine, it stood for a thousand years in canon. Um, but as we know, that's going back to a period of conflict so in theory, he's dating from something different, kind of like in Legends where you had, well, a thousand years ago was this event, the Great Resynchronization and everything. Before that, it was still the same Republic, but it's referred to sometimes differently. Okay, fine. Um, the Jedi are referred to in the book as having a 10,000-year history. Okay, where is the 10,000 coming from? Generally speaking, most reference works in Legends took Obi-Wan's Thousand Generations, assumed a generation was 25 years, dated it back to uh, 25,000 years, and then connected that to other stories. And then we got Dawn of the Jedi that sort of played around with it a little bit and gave us a little bit more detail and shifted the dates around a little bit. Um, Qui-Gon's age, uh, I'm told, is different. In the, I, I didn't notice the date references of his age. But Qui-Gon Jinn is a little bit younger, from what I understand, in the book than he was assumed to be within can. I'm assuming closer to the actor's age. Dooku does not leave because of Qui-Gon Jinn's death. It is not Qui-Gon Jinn's death that is the last straw, which does make sense with – if I remember correctly, it does make more sense with the Clone Wars that he would have left earlier, uh, the Clone Wars cartoon series. Um, But here we definitely see that at least – as of assuming Obi-Wan's age in Phantom Menace hasn't changed, at least as of eight years before the Phantom Menace, Dooku has already left. We also have a new Supreme Chancellor we had never heard of, I believe, uh, Chancellor Kaj. So there are bits and pieces that are tossed in here. We also have uh, Depa Bilaba, who is on the Jedi Council well before she was in Legends. And there is some question as to whether or not the circumstances were similar in terms of her being trained by Mace Windu, though I believe there are some references in canon still to her having been trained by Mace. I don't think there have been dates necessarily attached to it. So one thing that we are seeing with this, we're seeing it with Queen's Shadow, um, is this idea that you've got to kind of unlearn what you have learned. Sometimes you'll run into something that's an actual chronological inconsistency or error. Other times you'll run into stuff that is simply, guess what? canon works differently, like the Queens of Naboo and how frequent their terms change, uh, that it's yeah. not four-year terms, it's two-year terms, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and that sort of thing, like, oh, look, there's another Queen of Naboo we never even heard of who actually was the one who asked Padme to serve in the Senate. It wasn't Jamilia because Jamilia wasn't queen yet, and so on and so on. Um, there's just things we're learning as we go, But it's very hard for those of us who were very seeped in legends, I think, a lot of times um, to be able to separate out what we assume must still be true because it was true in legends and a longstanding fact of legends versus what could completely change. 
because guess what? This was never pinned down in TRG canon back in Legends. Therefore, it didn't make the copy and paste into the base of this new continuity. Right. It could turn out to be different. Just like, you know, Dooku has a Padawan prior to Obi-Wan, but it's uh, it's not... Uh, Dooku to, to... You mean Jin, not Obi-Wan, but yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Dooku, Dooku has a Padawan before Qui-Gon Jin, which is Rael Avaros, and we find that basically, you know, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon don't seem to have had the kind of separation that they did. We we see the circumstances under which uh, Qui-Gon is asked to join the council, right? If you would just obey the – if you would just obey whatever um, – I forget the exact line. You would be on the council. Well, apparently they asked him. He's going to wind up saying no. So it's not if he only did such and such he'd be on the council. It's if he'd said yes. Mm-hmm. But to some degree, it's you know it's kind of just a, a way of phrasing, right? It's a certain point of view. That, you know, he didn't agree with this. He made this different choice. But if he hadn't, if he had had the mindset maybe that Obi-Wan was talking about, maybe he would he would have joined the council. And and it was, wasn't was a matter of them not inviting him. It was that he chose not to, blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> again, it's this idea of this is another book kind of like Queen's Shadow that in certain points challenges you to have to let go of things you assumed must still, quote unquote, be true Despite the fact that we are dealing with a different continuity now and the old rules and the old expectations and the old facts about characters may not apply, which is where I'm really concerned about things like Star Wars Everything You Need to Know. Because as I recall, when Star Wars Everything You Need to Know, the first edition was printed, they immediately had to turn around and say, yeah, and some of it is actually going to be true for canon, and some of it's actually coming from legends, so yeah. So it was absolutely everything you need to know to be confused yeah, about right. different continuities, whereas I, I believe the expanded edition was better at that, but I haven't had a chance to really dig heavily into it, even though I've got it on my shelf. Um, we've got to be careful with that sort of thing. If you are really set in stone of what you think about certain aspects of continuity, that the minutiae can't be allowed to change – this book at times will rub you the wrong way, and so will Queen's Shadow. But if we take a more intellectually honest approach to it that, hey, it can change because it is a different continuity, you'll be fine. But I think that's definitely a bantha in the room because when I see complaints about this book, it's almost never about the story. Mm-hmm. It's always these things that, you know, depending on your perspective on them, are either going to grate against the fabric of your soul or be like, oh, huh, maybe give you a little mild indigestion, but you'll move on. Well, and even after this book, I want to say after this book, there's still like six more years or so that they, you know, are are buddy buddies, you know, the good the good years. Uh, but at the beginning of this, you know, Qui-Gon's talking to the council about how he fears that him and Kenobi are a mismatch. And I'm like thinking, you know, I'm like, gosh, Kenobi's 17. Like, shouldn't, shouldn't, and, and that was the other thing. Like, Kenobi's 17. So shouldn't Kenobi have been like 19 in The Phantom Menace? Now he's like 22, 23 when that happens now because it's like six years later. So, I, you know, wait, I was thinking wait, about those wait, things. Wait, wait. Is it six years? Does it I, say I, six years? I want to say in after is where they mark it down because Obi-Wan's Obi-Wan, talking about it. Because Obi-Wan is 17 in this, and we've always been told that Obi-Wan is 25 in Phantom Menace. So it may be that Obi-Wan's age has changed also, but I don't remember ever catching an exact time gap no, I, I'm, there. I'm looking but yeah, at it now. It says a few years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so it, would, it should be about eight. For the first few years. Oh, no, wait, no. 
No, for the first few years, they hadn't got along. Nope, that's not it. Look, I'm going to keep looking. <laughs> that's, the thing. that's the thing when you're reading a physical book instead of an ebook, You can't just search it. But I got to have them for my collection, right? especially since I got a signed copy of Master and Apprentice for books a million. Um, all right, anyway, so uh, where do you want to start from a story perspective? I mean, there's a lot to delve into here. Um, there's the prophecy of the chosen one we want to make sure to spend some time with. Do you want to start with broader themes? Where would you like to go since, you know, you're the one who is a little more prepared than I was this time? You got like, you know, probably pages marked and I, such. I, I, have I do have a lot of pages marked. Um, well, you know, I mean, the main thing here that that's jumped right out to me was a lot of similarities with Zahn's uh, Thrawn books. You know, in that you had those enemies that were closing off a system. This, we have a difference of that. You know, we got Pajal and Pajal's trying to open its borders. And one of the things that I thought was really exciting was that Zerka was still operating in the galaxy far, far away. I mean, if I recall correctly, Zerka came from uh, the Old Republic, uh, uh, the comics and the games and stuff, right? That was a creation of that, I think. So I was excited about that. But the fact that the way that the setting on Zerka is, or uh, on Pajal was, they're opening it up. The queen is going to be stepping down. She's going to be creating this new kind of... uh, uh, it's like a democratic alliance kind of thing where she's going to be giving away power. She'll be a, a figurehead basically. And, you know, the Jedi are being sent there to help that come about. And then in the background of this, you've got this, the whole slavery angle of with Zirka. And I honestly, when that came up, I wasn't thinking it was going to play as hard as it did. By the time you get to the end of the book, that was a, a major hit. And I thought it was really exciting because you think about how Jin meets Anakin and you know what he does for Shmi and stuff and he, it plays back to all this of the feelings that he had and what the Jedi should have done so I thought that was an interesting you know the way that they had that tied into the, the galactic political situation you know the Republic wants this to happen they're they're willing to look past the, the really crappy governance treaty that Zerka has managed to push forward which is basically going to allow Zerka Corporation to have all the contracts forever and ever and ever till the end of time and no one can cancel it. They can start new ones and all this, but they can never cancel any. And that is a fundamental thing that we find out halfway through the book, probably on the the closer to the first half of it. But when we find that out, not everyone believes. And so for, for me, like the idea of like, was the opposition really the bad guys or not? Like that was a really cool mystery that I thought I had nailed down four or five times, but I was not. Uh, but I thought the idea of the fact that they were using gra- uh, gravity anchors to open up this nebula in a sense was really cool. I mean, you know, it, it's almost kind of like what happens with the Sith and legends where, you know, there was a group of them that were in a nebula and no one could find them. And then one day, whoop, Oh, Hey, by the way, there's this whole culture sitting here. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing too, because one of the really cool things about the culture was that they, they downgraded the elaborateness of everything and yet on the inside of everything was really masterfully decorated stuff. And that went into a lot of their culture and the way that the princess was, you know, trying to walk that line and the way rail was put there. And as we discover why he was put there, I mean, it all just stacks up beautifully, like a brilliant house of cards. And by the time it's over, you're looking at Winterfell. I mean, I would just, I thought it was great. And I, for me, it all started with the introduction of the system. Yeah, for me being a political junkie, um, uh, this really jumped out at me because I didn't expect there to be that detailed of a political thread to the book. It seemed like it was more like, oh, somebody's trying to stop the deal. It's a political deal and somebody's trying to derail it. The end, which tends to be the way that a lot of stories handle political issues. They don't go for the complexity. Should have mm-hmm. known based on Bloodline that this would go for the political complexity. Um 
But what we got here basically was is right, like Pijal, this planet uh, with a very young queen. Uh, Fanry, who has not come into her own as full queen yet, uh, who has a regent, Rael Avaros, who is this uh, Jedi, former Padawan of Dooku, who lost his own Padawan because of a choice he made to basically dive into action, where she got hit by a thing that basically takes over your mind and causes you to attack your allies, I guess, is, yeah, is one way of putting it. slicer dart. Um, yeah, <laughs> slicer. He winds up slicing the brain, exactly. Uh, he winds up having to kill his own Padawan. Um is grieving over that and it's carrying that with them. So the idea is that he's supposed to try to, you know, help another young person. And yet it's that he gets very, very attached um, as one would expect. And we wind up with this situation where she is about to come of age. She's about to actually fully be queen and he would no longer be regent, except in order to give change to her people in theory, she's supposed to be creating what is essentially a constitutional monarchy. Uh, which is basically where you've got a constitution in place you ha or a representative monarchy uh, where you've got a constitution in place. You've got people with their representation, but there is still a monarch and the monarch essentially acts as a head of the executive. It's, it's kind of what Britain is to some degree um, where there's sort of the figurehead status, but she would still have some executive authority. But by and large, it would become a representative government, except – because of the terms of this contract that would lock things in for Zerka and certain scenarios uh, that could play out in the future, it basically locks representation for the society or the uh, the population of the moon of the planet pretty much out of the political picture, so, uh, leaving them subjugated. Yep, in the voice. mix of this, right, they're being pushed by Zerka, right? And Zerka's all about, you know, that it's a great deal, it's a wonderful deal, believe me. Believe me, right? Um, Zerka is out there essentially um, arguing the benefits of it because the benefits would be that if the deal goes through and the Republic steps in and, and is part of this ceremony that changes over the government and everything, what you wind up with is a hyperspace corridor opening. This planet gets opened up to the galaxy at large. Lots of new trade and everything. They uh, get the benefits of galactic civilization, so to speak. But the downside being that this is – a circumstance in which it's far enough away from the core of the Republic that the Republic will not step in to the business operations of Zerka. And Zerka has slavery. Um, uh, Rahara uh, Wick, who is one of the characters, well, he's a jewel thief, basically, or jewel, I guess, thief, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, characters in the book. Um, she is a former slave. So she has very strong feelings about this. And you're dealing with a complex situation now where there's opposition to Zerka. But we find that the opposition to Zerka is actually, again, this is spoiler territory of the book, right? We're in the spoiler part of the episode. Um, Zerka is being attacked by so-called black guards and being protested against by the opposition. Well, the opposition is a bunch of, like, performance artists. Yeah. They're all creatives. They're doing all kinds of stuff like, you know, flashy, showy messages they're not doing the violence side of things, but they're being blamed for the violence because along with them is the are those who are actually doing the violence. Wait a second. Where have I heard this before? Legends, alt-legends. Uh, right, <laughs> alt-right. And the whole idea that those who are peacefully speaking on a particular perspective need to be able to denounce those who are doing it in a more violent, uh, hurtful, harmful way. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what's going on here with these blackguards, only we wind up finding that the blackguards are not a home – a homegrown um, uh, protest movement per se, but Fanry has no freaking intention at all of giving up this power and instead is going to essentially take her place as the queen 
and become very authoritarian um, and not share power, not kick out, uh, not uh, uh, open the, the quarter and work with Zerka, but to go after Zerka themselves and take them down because of what they've done to her planet and so on. Um, she turns out to be crazy power mad kind of um, in what she wants to do at that point. She's very much like, uh, like, you know, Anakin's comments in, you know, in, in Attack of the Clones about, you know, get someone who's going to do what you want them to do and do it. Right. Um, but that becomes a big twist, as is the fact that the opposition and the Black Guards, the Black Guards turn out to be working with her and her security head um, and others behind the scenes and her, like her, her often present like handmaiden type figure, servant type figure, who turns out to also be a part of this, who's a, a slave or and then eventually former slave. Um, it's this very complex political situation with the Jedi Council pushing Qui-Gon to do what the Republic wants, which is attend the ceremony, work with Zerka, open the hyperspace lane. Whereas mm -hmm. Qui-Gon has qualms about it because of what it would mean for representation for the people on the moon and the entrenchment of Zerka and their slavery in the area. And Yoda even warns him very much like... Um, now, again, kind of going back to Anakin and Attack of the Clones to not be like that in, the, you know, kind of the where does it end, right? Mm -hmm. If you impose your will here to bring what you see as justice here, supplementing or uh, supplanting the legal situation, the legal remedies for your own brand of Jedi justice and action, where does that end? And does that allow the Jedi to essentially turn into sort of a, a force using theocracy? Um, that that's a dangerous road to go down, whereas that's exactly where eventually Anakin and, and Palpatine will wind up going. So, right. I mean, I really – I feel like the political situation in the book really gives it this really complex and interesting backbone, and they don't overplay it. It's played mm -hmm. just enough that you get a sense of what's going on in the complexity and how Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are kind of trapped in the middle of this, particularly when the Jedi Council orders Obi-Wan to go through with the ceremony when Qui-Gon refuses. But, uh, you know, it's it's a more complex tale than I expected. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned that Fran Fanry was the one that was doing it. And, and I mean, this is like one of the last reveals we get towards the very end of the book. And that's the one that threw me because at that point I was thinking it's got to be Zerka. You know, even though even though we see at one point they're attacking a Zerka base, I'm like, yeah, they're just doing this to get what they want. Because one of the fundamental things that they're able to do is they basically pass whatever law they want. And they're like, oh, you broke the law. OK, well, you're enslaved. Now we own you. We own your kids. We own you forever. And that's like a holy crap. It, you know, so that when when Jen finds that out and he has Obi-Wan actually do the background on that and, and prove, yeah, that that phrase actually means that. And you're like, holy crap, how come Rail hasn't stopped this? And they go into the background on Rail. You know, we find out that he was like age five when he gets brought into the order and that he missed his home and that he had connections and, you know, he knew what love was and all this stuff. And I mean, even the phrases and he stuff, he says like, you know, Jen stumbles in with him sleeping in a room. He goes, there's a difference between falling in love and simply giving oneself license to do as he pleases. And I was like, yeah, there is. Falling in love, that's what the Jedi Code forbids. Getting laid? Not so much. Not if it's which casual is, like me and Selby. Which is funny because you may remember there was a story in Star Wars Tales set, I believe, in the era of uh, the Knights of the Old Republic uh, or, or T-O-R-M-M-O type era. I forget which one. Um, that basically was the exact same thing. It was a Jedi who was like, look, I can bang whoever I want as long as I don't feel anything. Right? Yeah. I mean, he goes on, he's like, that doesn't compromise my emotions. It doesn't divide my loyalties. Anything like that. I've broken the letter of the law, but not the spirit. On Felucia, you broke the spirit of the law into a dozen pieces. And I'm like, 
what? Like, I want to know more about that right away. <laughs> I'm like, what? Whoa, Jin had his own little thing? Like, then I was thinking, maybe that was when Obi-Wan met Satine. Maybe they met on Felucia, and Jin was like, okay to let Obi-Wan. I'm, you know, I immediately want to know more about that, and I didn't get it. But relating to that, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been Felucia. Because we, because the way it's described, because I just rewatched and did uh, commentaries for those episodes of the Clone Wars, but I want to know who the girl on Felucia was. Um, But also, um, you remember how for a while there there were those jokes after the midichlorians thing was developed, and how this idea, oh, midichlorians. So basically, what you're saying is that the Force is like a STD now. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Better hope it's not, or Rael has been spreading the Force around. Yeah, I and and it it was cool because between that and him losing him, you know, you get this he gets this feeling where and I think he even mentions at one point where he feels like he's a poison to all those around him, which really kind of bummed me out. Like I really thought, you know, this this character who's uh, you know, down in the dumps, you know, when we get to the end, he gets an offer from Dooku to come and join him and I honestly thought he was going to take him up on it. But based yeah. off of what they give us in the before and after stuff, I thought for sure Rail was going to just turn because at that point, I mean, he was upset about so many things that had happened. He wasn't sure he was even going to go back to the order. And I was honestly kind of like, you know, you might you might be onto something there, broski. I mean, when he says the line that Qui-Gon said, I was like floored. I mean, and he says it matters because Rail is basically talking about the idea of light and dark. You know, if it just winds up being a tie, if it winds up being balanced, then what the hell does anything matter? Right. It matters which side we choose, even if there will never be more light than darkness, even if there can be no more joy in the galaxy than there is pain. For every action we undertake, for every word we speak, for every life we touch, it matters. I don't turn toward the light because it means someday I'll win some sort of cosmic game. I turn toward it because it is the light. Mm hmm. I mean, and Jin's character just stands out so much. I mean, even on page 172, there's a scene where he's fighting and he, he dives into this role and it takes him to a tree and he thinks of an apology because he slashes through the tree, tree trunk and a paragraph later, it's all Qui-Gon couch recovery behind the trunk of the fallen tree. He places one hand on the stump to ease it gently into death. And I'm like, dude, that's some real Jedi stuff right there. I mean, you don't see much of that, like actually caring about the things around him, the living force. And I mean, that was one of the things that was so fundamentally different about Jin than the rest of the Jedi and it comes into focus because you know he gets the invitation and yet his actions the rest of the council is like maybe we should take this back and Yoda's like give him the invitation we did stick to it we must and you're just like oh okay all right no take maxis no (laughs) well and and the idea that he is being asked and they mentioned how you know a few years ago they would not have probably asked him you know this idea that you know he's grown is an interesting thing the idea that he's kind of maturing and in a lot of ways his views are maturing here as well, not only on the slavery thing, but we learn through all these flashbacks about how basically while he was Dooku's Padawan, he started getting interested, thanks really to Rael kind of pointing him in that direction for a school assignment, essentially, um, mm-hmm. into prophecy. And this idea that as he learned more about the prophecies, um, Dooku found out about it and had previously been fascinated by the prophecies. It was like, no, we don't want you to study this stuff. This is the path to the dark side, because once you start trying to know the future, it's trying to control the future. That way leads to the dark side. And Qui-Gon's kind of thinking, nah, nah, it's cool. It's fine. It's not going to happen to me. It's all right. Until Dooku finally relents and works with him, teaching him about it, until the point where Qui-Gon starts to notice that it looks like Dooku himself is looking into it a little too much. Um, To the point where I have to wonder if maybe 
Qui-Gon's fascination with the prophecies reawakening Dooku's fascination with the prophecies might in part be a reason why Dooku was susceptible to the dark side later. Maybe Qui-Gon played yeah. a role in his own master's downfall to some degree. Oh, I, I um, feel like that's for sure because there's that scene where, where Jin almost dies and Dooku unleashes the force lightning yes, on the uh, bounty yes. hunter. And after that, suddenly, suddenly magically after Jin has a conversation with Rael, I think Rael went to Dooku and said, Hey, you might want to talk to your, your boy Jin because all of a sudden, boom, he was like, Oh, we're not going to, I mean, he said everything he needed to, to make Qui-Gon think that this is over. And even Qui-Gon's like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about it again because I'm worried about my master. Yeah, I'm not even going to broach the subject again because if me choosing to believe that the prophecies aren't real mm -hmm. is what it takes to protect my master from the consequences of delving into prophecy, that's what I'm going to do. And yet in this book, this is where in, a, in essence that comes into maturity as well because for him this is where he starts to realize – with, with a prophecy about, you know, the kyber that is not kyber, and they find these crystals that are basically like kyber crystals, but not, that are used at one point to power the Black Guard's armor that can basically block lightsabers, um, that he sees this and starts to realize, wait, holy crap, this may be true. And, and all that former interest and former study comes back, tempered now with all the doubt that he had since then to some degree uh, and the doubt of Obi-Wan as well, kind of as a, someone to bounce ideas off of, but he starts delving into some of these really interesting aspects of it. There's two prophecies I wanted to point out. One that uh, Dooku had actually been fascinated by the paragraph says uh, essentially, although Qui-Gon still liked coming up with theories about how past historical events might have fulfilled certain masters prophetic visions, Dooku's fascination was all for the future. One prophecy in particular occupied him more than any other. This occupied Dooku more mm -hmm. than any other. Quote, he who learns to conquer death will, through his greatest student, live again. And I can't help but look at that and not just think of uh, the Palpatine slash Sidious relationship with Plagueis. You know, and the, the, the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. But the fact yeah. that we've got the freaking Emperor cackling in the Episode Nine trailer now. <laughs> and this question of his greatest student. Is it possible we're talking about Palpatine conquering death and his greatest student being, if not Vader, maybe Snoke? For all we know. I mean, we don't know. Or, or I, I don't know. I, I, we I don't, we know. don't I know. You're right. connecting to something else. Um, so that one's a big one. But then you also have the one that had me sitting back saying, OK, how does this connect to Mortis now, mm -hmm. which is the full version canonically of the prophecy of the chosen one. Again, canonically, because I believe there were aspects of it that were provided in Legends, um, but I'm not sure that they match. I haven't gone in and, and dug the Legends version up. But in canon, it apparently reads, only through sacrifice of many Jedi will the order cleanse the sin done to the nameless. The danger of the past is not past, but sleeps in an egg. When the egg cracks, it will threaten the galaxy entire. When the force itself sickens, past and future must split and combine. A chosen one shall come, born of no father, and through him will ultimate balance in the force be restored. And there's a few things about that that jump out to me. One, only through sacrifice of many Jedi, right, Order 66, Will the Order, with the capital O, the Jedi Order, cleanse the sin done to the nameless? I'm thinking that may be the Battle of Malachor, where we see, you know, all the dead Sith and whatnot in Rebels and in uh, one of the Maul comics, perhaps. The danger mm -hmm. of the past is not past, but sleeps in an egg, right? The danger's not gone. When the egg mm -hmm. cracks, it'll threaten the galaxy entire, right? When it emerges again, you know, when the Sith reveal themselves, okay. 
when the force itself sickens, past and future must split and combine, right? Uh, when the force itself sickens, right, you know, the dark side clouds everything and so on. Past and future must split and combine. I'm not sure about that unless it's a sly kind of jab to the fact that we have the original trilogy and prequel trilogy. Um, unless, unless, unless Sidious lives on as a Sith ghost and he takes over Kylo Ren. Or the world between worlds, for all we know. Right, right. Uh, he's got a portal to the world between worlds down the <laughs> shaft just in case he ever gets well, thrown into it. You know, another thing, too, the nameless could be the babies that the Jedi take from their parents that become other Jedi. I mean, you know, if they were taken young enough, then they would have different names by the time they get to the Order. That is true. And then a chosen one shall come, born of no father, of course, Shmi and all. Uh, and no, the Vader comic has not confirmed, for those who say that it has, that Palpatine created... Anakin yeah. within yeah, no, Shmi. Yeah. They clarified yeah. that that was look that that image was about his influence over the situation and everything, but not an actual creation yeah. of Anakin. So yeah. so far we don't have an answer for that necessarily in canon. In Legends, it was the Force reacting to the efforts to try to uh, to essentially create it was life or its own chosen one or whatever with the experiments that were going on. Uh, with Plagueis, as I recall, the Plagueis or Palpatine, I think it was Plagueis who was still doing it at the time. Yeah. Um, but that's all that dark Plagueis novel stuff that's not canon. Um, but then, uh, and through him shall ultimate balance in the Force be restored, which of course goes into a Return of the Jedi and the toppling of the Emperor and so on and so on and so on. Um, none of which has anything to do with Mortis. So again, mm -hmm. the idea that the Chosen One prophecy for the Jedi and uh, the Mortis situation relate in that they are about a similar individual and the concept of balance, but very different in its style. And this, at least, still allows the idea, since, you know, in theory, whenever the Emperor is toppled, we have a Jedi, but no Sith. Um, the idea that uh, we're kind of going back to the original version of when Lucas tried to explain the prophecy, whereas in later times he was it was presented in Mortis as an actual balance. Um but in Lucas's words, when he first was talking about it, the idea that um, what is good and natural is the light and that darkness and evil are like a cancer within yeah. the body of the galaxy. And that balance means restoring what is natural, which means getting rid of the cancer, but keeping the light, which is not balance in terms of scales, but balance in terms of health. But yeah, I found it really cool that they actually uh, – I mean – I'm assuming that this was something they had to run by the story group, right? That they've allowed a real text of a chosen one prophecy or the chosen one prophecy to be in a book like this where they're actually debating prophecy. Although to some degree I wouldn't put past the idea that this could have been something that was written in the book that, that Claudia Gray came up with that was really cool that nobody bothered to check. But I'd like to think that it's not that loose these days. Well, even the fact that you point out that there's a, there could be two different Chosen One prophecies. I mean, think about the fact that they talked about the Jedi mystics were seeing millennia into the future. I mean, you know, like you said at the beginning, the Jedi Order was only around for, what, tens of thousands of years. So, I mean, they're looking way past what's happening right now in Star Wars even. You know, and so some of these could have applied to many things because that was part of the fun for Rail, Obi-Wan, and Dooku oh was God. trying to find out which one's tied. Oh, my God. Dude. Star Wars was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. They were looking millennia into the future. It's our present. It was about Hitler. <laughs> no? Are yeah, all so. bad prophecies supposed to be about Hitler? That's, at least that's in, true. in the way that most people interpret them these days? 
Well, one other one that really got me excited uh, on page 199, Jin learns of a prophecy of a Malastare Dark Jedi, a prophecy about the Sith reappearing or the Sith Darth Rend, who is believed to be dead but had returned to wage war on the Jedi. And I thought all of those things were really exciting because for me, right now, you know, we know very little about the past Sith. You know, we know about Bane and we don't know much more about that. You know, we know that they went rule of two, but we don't know if they were. They were always in order. If they were just to split up from the Jedi, there's so much I want to get back into that. And the fact that we have Malastare Dark Jedi, and it's a Dark Jedi, I'm like, <gasps> but that, but that gets me because who in canon now? Who are the natives of Malastare? They're Dugs. They're Sabulba's people, right? Imagine a Sith Sabulba and his daughter, who's a Dark Jedi, and so on. I'm just like, wait, that's a little. Weird looking. Although, imagine a lightsaber duel with those weird, like, feet hand kind of things going on. That's <laughs> kind of cool to watch. Right? Yoda's got nothing on a Doug. <laughs> stand on proper limbs, you will. Yes! Well, and speaking of not being able to stand, there's a scene where, where Obi-Wan's chasing down the group of the Black Guards after they made their attempt on Fanry during the hunt. Uh, it's a ceremonial thing that they do, because there's a lot of ceremonial stuff has to happen. We've done it for thousands of years. So they go out there, and Obi-Wan comes across the sinkhole, right? And so he's about to fall in. And I'm thinking, you know, why doesn't Jin just levenite Kenobi out of there? You know, why why aren't you using the Force in these kind of ways? But there's a moment where Obi-Wan yells to his master, no, save yourself. And suddenly Jin realizes he was the problem. Not Kenobi, because this is the boy who believed I found unworthy as an apprentice. The one I failed to tell about the most significant change in my life. Maybe I don't deserve him, and I never have. I was just like, oh, man, dude, that was that was the beginning of when I started to come around on the whole relationship of them. Because I had a hard time with them being, you know, Kenobi being 17, and they still hadn't found a rhythm. And later they talk about the fact that like, you know, two wrongs almost make a right in a sense. Like, you know, th there's a, a line about rebelling and they're like, well, you know, they put you with the one Jedi that's rebelling all the time. So your natural instinct was to rebel and become the perfect Jedi. I'm like, ah, that's awesome. It that was so great when they had that moment. <laughs> yeah, they really do play that up really well because um, eventually you get a sense that this is a very human relationship. Right. And, and at first it's like, oh, they're just not getting along and they're just not sharing things. Why don't they just share stuff? And the more you're along, the, the further along you get, the more you get the psychological underpinnings of all of it and why they're making the decisions that they are. Like Qui-Gon, in his case, he's trying to figure out when the perfect time would be to tell Obi-Wan about the offer from the Jedi Council without Obi-Wan feeling rejected if he says yes, because in theory, Obi-Wan would go to someone else, although who says a Jedi Council member can't have an apprentice, I guess. Although apparently that's what, what it would entail. Um, but this idea that that choice is taken from him, right? Because it's Rael, I believe, uh, who's the one who mentions it to Qui-Gon in front of Obi-Wan, which is how Obi-Wan finds out. So in the act of trying to spare Obi-Wan's feelings, he winds up causing a big breach between them. And it seems like a lot of times that's Qui-Gon's thing. Qui-Gon is acting more protective and more like a parental figure than as a teacher or a partner. And that's kind of where they have to get to in this and realize it. Although, I will say, just to kind of kind of add a counterpoint to this, as great as it is to see their relationship grow, there was one thing in it that I felt like they were trying to, Claudia Gray, was trying to explain something in the films that felt weird at the beginning. 
And by the end, I was like, really? Did you need to do that? That was more ham-fisted than what we got sometimes in Solo to try to explain <laughs> everything. Do you know what it is I'm talking about? No, no. Lay it on me. It's Obi-Wan's hatred of flying. Okay. Because in this entire book up until the end, Obi-Wan is like, I love flying. Flying is badass. I am an awesome yeah. flyer. Woo! Right? He loves flying. Right up until the point where he's in the little shuttle from uh, the, the, uh, facet. The, 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 the facet, which is the shuttle for the, the thieves' ship. And it goes on like autopilot and blazes its way through a Zerka cruiser. Uh, the leverage all the way up until the point where it's basically in the bridge. Um, and it's doing it completely out of his control, and he's freaking the hell out the entire time. And he's like, no, I'm done. I don't ever want to fly again. I am done. Uh, which makes sense, right, to, that if even if you love something, if you have a big traumatic experience with it, it would co might cause you to change your feelings and dislike it. But it just kind of felt like, really? See, that's what we're going to make the reason why he doesn't like flying rather than just the dude doesn't like flying. Did we need that explanation? Because it, it was one of the few things that rubbed me as false throughout the beginning of the book. And then once we got the explanation for why it shouldn't have rubbed me false, because, oh, well, of course, you know, it was going to get an explanation. It felt like it was shoehorned in there that didn't need to be. It's one of the few aspects of character development in this book I feel like we could have done without because it felt like it was shoehorned rather than natural. That that could be because when it started, I was like, oh, we're going to get it. We're going to find out why he doesn't hate it. But when they got to it, for me, I, I thought it kind of made sense because, I mean, for Obi-Wan up to this point, like he, he wrote on the, the Vlactral, the, the same kind of iguana lizard that he rides in episode three. You yeah, know, he cool. loves the speed. He loves the control. He loves the finesse. Right. And he wants to push farther and faster and harder. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of like Anakin. Right. Well, that's, that doesn't seem like Kenobi. But then we get to that moment and the ship's doing it. And I'm thinking this is exactly what happens to him later. He has no control and he's threading a needle. He's like he's got like a couple meters on each side of him as he's doing this. And I'm thinking that right there, that's classic Kenobi. What we see later, he absolutely hates flying with Anakin because he has no control. And Anakin pushes things way too close to the edge. So, oh, I, yeah, I mean, but, I but, do agree, though, overall that, yeah. Yeah, it was ham-fisted, but I, I was okay with the way it dropped. But he doesn't only say that when it's Anakin flying. If it was just he doesn't like flying with someone when he's not in control, yeah. that's one thing. But he says that flying is for droids and everything when it's him flying. Yeah. So it's not just – it's just that he has this general hatred of flying that comes out of that incident, which, again, psychologically makes sense, but didn't feel like it needed to be there to me at least. Um. The Veractal thing I thought was actually pretty cool because it makes sense of how he was able to so easily take to a Veractal um, on Utapau in Revenge of the Sith. I felt like that was something where they didn't call big attention to it. It just happened to be that was the creature they were riding, which if you know that that's the creature uh, that we see in Revenge of the Sith, like, oh, OK. Um, I thought that was that, that played out much better. Um, mm. Generally speaking, I also like uh, we have this this character we meet named pax oh yes and pax is really an interesting character because there's only so many tropes you can go with when it comes to character types to make them instantly recognizable uh rahara is the she's nice to him she cares for him that is pax and she's a thief, but she has this heart of gold when it comes to slaves because she was a former slave and uh, she doesn't ever want to be taken back. In fact, it was it was almost traumatic to me as a reader when she gets captured and gets taken back as oh, a slave. Oh, it was. That was hard. Um, but she's kind of a one-note character in that sense. There's not a whole lot to her beyond that description. 
but she plays uh, the key character that you love, the, the poster yeah. girl for slavery and why the, the Jedi should right. do something about it, which I thought was but, cool. But her relationship is is with this, and it's a friendship that's heading towards a relationship, but he doesn't quite know how to deal with it until later, um, with this person named Pax, right? So she fits an archetype to some degree, or a very easily describable character in a couple of lines, right? Yeah. You, you describe her, you kind of know what her attitude is going to be. Describe a Jedi, usually. You kind of know what they're going to be. You describe, you know, Avaros. You know, he's a, he's a Jedi he's, – he's like a Jedi – hobo <laughs> you know like that yeah. he's just a different guy he's a jedi who, who's sort of unchained but still trying to do good or whatever um, jedi Tyrion. <laughs> there's a lot of characters that you could describe very quickly but look across star wars books and typically you'll see similar characters with slight differences um different names of course um but that can kind of be dropped into certain camps and then you've got pax because pax his entire demeanor the way he speaks, his attitude towards things are all defined by his childhood when he was the last survivor on a ship and was raised by protocol droids, a group of bickering protocol droids, and for years survived with them until finally being found and brought back into regular galactic society with sentience. And that creates a very unusual character here. Which really felt like a breath of fresh air. Like he was annoying, but annoying in a good way because he's like annoying in a way that we haven't been annoyed before, <laughs> except by right. protocol droids. Um, <laughs> and, which made for a really fresh feeling character because it felt very Star Wars because it was mm -hmm. a realistic type of situation. It sounds like, um, and we're used to protocol droids, and yet here's a very different take on a human than we've seen before in Star Wars. So uh, it's almost like as much as Wahara felt familiar. He felt unfamiliar in a good way. I was very surprised that by the end of the book, I actually dug the character and his background. When first mm -hmm. meeting him, I didn't really dig the character at all. But once we're about halfway through the book and know more about his background, how he was, was raised, and get some like mini, not really flashbacks, but close like within the narration, and get some of the, that great third-person limited narration with his perspective – well, and even Rahara, because she breaks down stuff with him where she's like, oh, he's just reacting like that because that's how he was done. And she presents things in different ways to force his hand, which I thought was great. And that's the way that two people who who know each other well. And it's, it's funny because in essence, that's kind of a counterpoint to Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, right? right. Uh, or even Dooku and Qui-Gon, as we see in the flashbacks, in that here are two people who are partners who have this relationship where they understand each other. Almost intuitively, because it's funny because Pax does not understand her human stuff most right. of the time and yet reacts in a way that he's trying to understand it. And like he 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 reacts to her in ways that he thinks is appropriate based on what he has grown to understand. But a lot of it is informed by the protocol droids. So it's, sometimes it's kind of awkward, whereas she is someone who should be just annoyed by this guy constantly and instead has great affection for him and – is able to be the one explaining it. It reminds me, and that's that's how a partnership should work, how Obi-Wan and Anakin, or Obi-Wan and Anakin, uh, well, eventually Obi-Wan and Anakin, but Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon should be working. But it reminds me very much of, you know, some of the greatest partnerships where you don't feel like you have to even spell things out, the other person understands what you mean, or the flip side, when I go to, uh, taking, taking PAX as an example, if I go to an IEP meeting or a 504 meeting, these are the meetings for those who aren't, 
uh, aware, uh, I'm a teacher, and if you go to a meeting for IEP or 504, it means you're going to have some type of meeting about a specialized education plan of some kind for a student who either has some type of of learning slash cognitive issue they're dealing with or a physical ailment they're dealing with. And you're coming up with some type of specialized educational plan to help them be able to basically meet the educational targets that they have and and help them, we use the phrase, access the content, access the courses, uh, give them the learning in the least restrictive environment possible to make it work for them. And a lot of times you'll be in these meetings and there'll be things that the student does that bars explanation oftentimes until the parent says something about the way they perceive things and can explain it in such a way that it's like unlocking the door and understanding the person just like, you know, it's like somebody flipped on a light switch because they have that understanding of the other person as an individual, not as their ailment or their um, whatever it is that they're dealing with, whether it's it's a, a physical ailment or whatever. But as a person, I think that's kind of what we've got here. We have this great connection between those two where she can see and understand him in a way that no one else does at this point, but can elucidate that for others in a way that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan will, but haven't yet. And I'm not sure that Dooku and Qui-Gon ever did. And it's a great parallel because this book, Master and Apprentice, really could have been Masters and Apprentices Because you've got that Dooku-Qui-Gon parallel, but in a lot of ways, this other relationship fits. Just like you've also got the relationship, you know, I said that to some degree, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, it's almost like he's trying to protect uh, Obi-Wan and be more like a parent than he is a partner or a teacher. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Fanray and Rael, right? Throughout the entire thing, you have these little moments that she has where it sounds like she's being rebellious, like she's just like snarky, like, like, "Mm mm-hmm, whatever, only to realize she's really kind of boiling inside and she's about to become like, you know, a dictator or something. Um, But you get the sense that maybe she's just like scoffing at the fact that he looks at her as a child, but he is so doting and he's like, you know, everything I've done is for you. Yeah. And she's like, you never asked me what I wanted. You're just doing this for the memory of this dead Padawan and I'm the replacement for her. Um, mm-hmm. You never bothered to care what I wanted, which is the extreme version of that Obi-Wan Qui-Gon thing where he really is focusing in like a blind parent, but one who's all about what they want for the child, not what the child actually wants. Not what's best for the person, but what's best for the situation or what they perceive a child or a queen or whatever, quote unquote, should be. Um, there's a lot yep. of different aspects where you could draw parallels between pairs of characters in this book, let alone to other characters like Obi-Wan Anakin and their dynamic. Right. Absolutely. No, Fanry herself, too. I, like she gets kind of power hungry at the end. They mentioned that. But I feel like the situation. Kinda? Well, I mean, she Kinda. she does. But I feel like the situation and everything that pushed her to that spot, like I felt like had she opened up at any point. She could have gotten through this without going completely psychotic at the end, you know, like, like, like there, there was a time where they could have, have turned everything around, had Rail noticed what was going on, but he was so blinded by everything that happened with Nim, he never caught on. Um, And one of those moments that that I love so much is uh, around 2.30, this is the moment where, where Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon start to click again. And they're having the conversation about Kenobi now being uh, the delegate. You know, he went behind Jin's back. And Obi-Wan goes, so you're turning your back on Avarice and Fanry instead of working to convince them, Obi-Wan said? We can still succeed on this mission and do what's fair for the people on Bajal. If you persist on quoting mysticism and refusing to compromise, however, I will persist, Qui-Gon replied. Rail Avaros is beyond listening to reason. His dedication to protecting Fanry has turned into mania. We'll get nowhere with him. 
fan raise a child who must who must look up to Rael as nothing like a or something like a father. If he won't budge, I doubt she will either. It's not a matter of negotiation, Obi Wan. It's a matter of principle. We must stand firm. Obi Wan lifted his chin. Yes, it's a matter of principle. The principle being that we as Jedi must not go beyond our mandate. That we must work within the mandate to do what is right. That was the second time in the half day that Qui Gon had been lectured about the limits of the Jedi mandate. His conscience tinged him slightly. It was important for Jedi not to become arrogant, not to impose their wishes and values on others around them. But this situation was different. It had to be, because the only thing Qui-Gon knew to be absolutely true was that his vision was real. He said, in this case, my Padawan, we cannot both work within our mandates and do what is right. I've chosen the latter. Obi-Wan walked towards the door, obviously outdone. At the beginning of my apprenticeship, I couldn't understand you, he said. Unfortunately, that's just as true here at the end. Only yesterday, when they worked together as never before, how did Qui-Gon manage to get closer to Obi-Wan at the same time he was moving further away? Just before Obi-Wan was leaving the room, Qui-Gon said, Once, you asked me about the basic lightsaber cadence. Why I'd kept you there instead of training you more in the advanced forms of combat. Obi-Wan turned reluctantly to face him again. And, and the moment they're talking about is Obi-Wan finally meditated before doing any kind of battle and he felt the force like Jedi and the new Jedi order were all the time. It was a great freaking moment. But Obi-Wan says, I suppose you thought I wasn't ready for more the same way that I'm not ready to believe in this mystical. That's not why after a long pause, Obi-Wan calmed to the point where he would listen. Then why Qui-Gon? Because many Padawans and full Jedi Knights for that matter, forget that the most basic technique is the most important technique, the purest, the most likely to protect you in battle and the foundation of all knowledge that is to come. Qui-Gon said, most apprentices want to rush ahead to styles of fighting that are flashier or more asteroid. Most masters let them because we must all find our preferred form eventually. But I wanted you to be grounded in your technique. I wanted you to understand the basic cadence so well that they would become instinct so that you would be almost untouchable. Above all, I wanted to give you the training you needed to accomplish anything you set your mind on later. Obi-Wan remained quiet for so long that Qui-Gon wondered if he were too angry to really hear any of what he had just said. But finally, his Padawan knighted. Thank you, Qui-Gon. I appreciate that. But, but what? You could have said so, Obi-Wan replied and then left. I mean, just like, man, that moment was just so deeply profound that I was I was so excited because that was what I felt like I was missing from the beginning of the book with Obi-Wan already being 17. I felt like we missed out on that opportunity to see them come together, but we didn't. That was this opportunity in canon, and I thought that was great. They did it in one book, what Jude Watson did in a series of books. Granted, Jude Watson gave us more about what was going on with the Republic at large, with the political aspect of dealing with systems, but Claudia Gray again delivers that with the aspect of what's going on with the slavery. How even though it's it's illegal across the Republic, Zerka can come in anywhere and have their slaves working around because it's not illegal for them to have their sentient property there, even though it should have been. And that was something that, that Qui-Gon goes at to Yoda against and I thought that was a brilliant move too because that was something that was very fundamental to what was going on with Jude Watson stuff and how the Republic kept failing over and over again and the Jedi were just completely powerless within their mandate to do anything beyond the law and it's funny because you even get this I don't know what the word would be um, it, I guess the you know in, in the real world we'd say it's a politically correct term I guess but or a euphemism but this sentient property you mean slaves right. Right? right but they use sentient property just like in the real world you had human chattel right human chattel meant slaves mm -hmm. uh, human beings considered property same type of thing um 
I think a good counterpoint to that, again, going back to the, the relationships, is the exchange. We basically get um, – so you have – Qui-Gon has these visions about how the ceremony is going to go bad, so he bows out of it um, because of that and the slavery thing. Uh, Obi-Wan winds up stepping in, uh, quasi-reluctantly kind of okay with it, um, winds up working out because they've changed Obi-Wan's lightsaber crystal out because he has shown – Fanray and them how it actually works, so they know how to open it and take out the, the crystal. They've replaced it with one of the false kyber crystals, so it doesn't wind up um, uh, working right uh, at the time. Winds up working through what usually a lightsaber couldn't do with, with a blackguard shield and all. Um, so it winds up working out that Obi-Wan's uh, hesitancy caused him to be out of it, because if it had been Qui-Gon, they wouldn't have you know known to switch out the thing in his lightsaber, so he would have had his regular one. It wouldn't have worked. He might have died, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the queen and her uh, con fellow conspirators the, in this quote-unquote revolution from the top make their way into space to go after Zerka. And finally, Qui-Gon and Riel and them are actually able to get her on comms to try to talk this out. And there's a great exchange um, that epitomizes what I was talking about with those characters and the way that he acted and how it's sort of a microcosm in the extreme of what um, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan were running into. She answers the hail and... Uh, Rael responds, you know, Fanray, that is the queen, why? Didn't you ever see the only reason I ever worked with Zerka, that is in working on the treaty, was to make things easier for you? That every damn thing I did was only ever for you? She responds, it was never for me. It was for Nim, that's his dead Padawan. Everything you did was for her. You never stopped to ask yourself if the things a wounded child might have needed were the same as the things a future queen would need. You protected me when you should have taught me. You talked at me when you should have listened to me. And then Qui-Gon steps in. Your Majesty, this isn't primarily a chance for you and your former regent to talk over old times. It's a chance to discuss whether you're willing to stand down and come up with a diplomatic solution. The Republic was already attempting to find ways for your people to cast off Zerka's influence. She responds, by taking away my absolute authority? Though really, the more I study my history, the more I realize no monarch of Pijal has truly ruled in centuries. Zerka's grip has been too strong. I need the full authority of the throne, Jedi. The Republic is compromised by Zerka's wealth and influence. Only I can free my world. With the future of the hyperspace quarter on the line, your bargaining position has only grown stronger. Will you negotiate? Will you help us find a peaceful solution? And she replies, I've seen the cost of peace. I prefer war. So she's in the extreme. The funny thing is, though, also looking at this, the Republic is compromised by Zerka's wealth and influence. You know, uh, the, the Senate is dominated by greedy, squabbling delegates and so on. Uh, corruption, corruption, corruption. She's not entirely wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, which also, you know, as, as extreme as she is going, there's a part of her rationale in doing what she's doing, even though it has betrayed all those around her that weren't in on the plot, yeah. um, that sort of makes sense in the way that, reflecting this over to Legends, you know, in some respects, what Anakin wound up doing, he thought yeah. was right. What yeah. Jason Solo, Darth Kytus, was doing, he Ooh. thought was right. Um, mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same type of aspect here where it becomes kind of a question of how you do what you do, not what you're doing. It's not about the ends justifying the means. The means actually do matter as well, which I guess is part of what Qui-Gon was talking about, about you know, choosing the light. Right. Um, but it's interesting here that where she talks about, you know, you talked at me when you should have listened to me. You protected me when you should have taught me and so on. Um, you see that kind of thing and you hear that a lot when you look at 
um, testimonials and comments by people we – I don't think there's an, an official name, but a lot of times we refer to uh, in educational circles as iGen, which is the generation basically born once smartphones were ubiquitous pretty mm -hmm. much. So the generation like currently right now in middle school, high school, early college um, in that – when they are facing things like depression or unreadiness for adult life, because they've kind of had many of the milestones of adulthood pushed back um, in terms of things like, you know, not bothering to get their license when they're 16. They're not going to get it until later if they get it at all. Um, right. A lot of them putting off, you know, first times of different things um, until later, first serious relationships until later and so on and so on, um, which is a, a cultural thing that you see happening um, pinned mm -hmm. down in a, uh, Dr. Twenge's iGen book, which is a fantastic read if you're into psychology and, and demographic studies. Um, but in essence, you hear that a lot when they're facing a lot of the issues that they run into, which is this idea that, you know, don't coddle us as a generation. Yeah. Teach us, raise us, teach us what's right, and let us confront the things that we need to confront. Because if you stand in for us every time and fight our battles for us, you're going to leave us unprepared to fight those ourselves. In mm -hmm. essence, Rayel never taught fan reform one, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's that idea of treating her like a child. I mean, that's where on, on 296, she's like, uh, Orth goes, Princess Fanry, please. She tottered forward into the ozone scent of the blaster with a courage that made Qui-Gon reevaluate her. You don't know what you're doing. You're hardly more than a child. A child? The princess's voice rose to a shriek. There are queens my age on Naboo. Princess the age on, my age on Toydaria. Alderaan's queen took Princess Bria to help her negotiate a treaty. And she's younger than I am. I mean, she's lost her crap, and she's legitimately justified. There are other people out there ruling. Mandalorian kids are adults at 13, for which, crying out but, loud. But at the, which at the same time, though, kind of goes back to this question of you look at the way she's reacting, and part of me could say, you know what? She's got a point about those ages. But you also look at people like the Queens of Naboo and, yep. and the Royal House of Alderaan. You say, you know what, though? These are some very, very mature young people. Like my wife and I, for instance, have a 10 year difference between us. Mm. Um, at the time that we started dating, I generally, if someone had asked me, would you date someone with that big of an age gap? My answer would have been no, because of, generally speaking, the maturity level of most people of that age. Mm -hmm. um, in her case, she had to mature very quickly because she, in a lot of ways, was helping hold the household together um, after a mom that kind of ran off um, at one point, um, being almost in a lot of ways raised by grandparents, one of whom had passed away recently. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that she had had to go through that put her in a position where she was much more mature for her age. Right. Um, and I think that's the key there. It's not about your chronological age. Mm -hmm. There are some really immature people at my age right now. Yeah, people think the, I'm 20 still. <laughs> and the flip side of that is there are people out there who are very young who are who are quite mature. Fanray has a what you might call an immature perspective of age in that she is measuring herself by years mm -hmm. relative to maturity. That somehow the fact that she is of a certain age should mean that she should be able to wield the authority with the wisdom of someone who's on Naboo or Tordaria right. or whatever, whatever, whatever. Although – Again, to, to counter the point uh, at the same time, that's kind of what the law does. Congratulations. You're 18. You are now mature, even if we know nothing about you. Congratulations. Right. You're 16. You're now mature enough to drive, even though we don't know a thing about you. 
society can't do a maturity test to determine whether you meet certain benchmarks to be able to do things that we do based on age. But that seems to be sort of the more arbitrary way that she's looking at it rather than being about maturity. So it's kind of an interesting, you know, kind of play on that same type of thing that here she is, you know, she's kind of making her own point against herself. Oh, yeah, well, compare me to them. Yeah, we are. You're not ready. Right. You know, another thing that really jumps out at me, especially while we're talking about this, is Qui-Gon's decision not to join the Jedi Council, in a sense, puts him on the path where he discovers the way to eternal life, right? We know that he doesn't tell anybody about this when he dies. He comes back after life and talks to Yoda and tells him, you know, hey, there's a way to do this. But when he tells them why he won't join the Order, Mace regained his aplomb before the others. May we ask why? Qui-Gon knew the Council to be wrong about many things. He felt they'd allowed the Jedi to become a sort of Chancellor's police rather than concentrating on knowing the Force. Yes, they were wise to refuse to rule, but unwise to simply accept the status quo. Short-sighted to lose touch with the living Force by spending so much of their time and energy on enforcing laws that could as easily be left to civilian authorities. Immoral to refuse to act against evils such as slavery, but none of those were the reasons he chose to decline. My relationship to the Force has changed, Qui-Gon said. I wish to be silent for a while, to surrender to it, to accept whatever the Force brings. Joining the Council would take me far away from that goal. But this is the path I must follow. That, in the end, was why the prophecies weren't dangerous to him, not the way they had been to others who'd been led towards darkness. The danger came in thinking that knowing the future became a form of control over it. Finally, Qui-Gon understood it was the exact opposite. Knowing the future meant surrendering to fate, surrendering to the ebb and flow of light. Only through that surrender could the Force be truly known. After the council meeting, Qui-Gon set out to find Obi-Wan. Of all places, he turned out to be in the gardens. That gave them a quiet place to sit together while Qui-Gon explained what he had decided and why. Obi-Wan was staggered at first, but then came to understand very quickly. I suppose in the end, you couldn't agree with the council even about your own being on the council, he said. But if this is the path you're called to, then this is the path you must follow. Which comes to the question of why you'll follow, whether you'll follow it with me, Qui-Gon took a deep breath. I realize we've had difficulties, but this mission changed things, I think, and for the better. If you would prefer another master, I wouldn't be offended. If it were up to me, though, we would continue on as we are. Slowly, Obi-Wan began to smile. You know, master, I've realized... I wouldn't learn nearly as much from someone who always agreed with me. And I mean, that just small little bit of the two of them after he drops that bomb. I mean, these were the things that just brought everything back for me. And that made this book become so great in my mind. Because that, like I said, I kept comparing it to Jude Watson's books. And Jude Watson's books on that are pretty much the authority for these two's relationships. So to get there in one book... I feel like that is a testament to a writer. I mean, I got there. I mean, I didn't start out there, but I got there. And I that, I think, is why I feel like I got to agree with you. This is a must read. You know, the only other thing, I mean, you, I think you touched on it re- very lightly, the, the false kyber crystals. And when they swapped out Obi-Wan's and it came on and it was able to cut through the shield and stuff, I thought that was interesting, the fact that they were able to use a kyber crystal that wasn't really a kyber crystal. I mean, Pax even sold it to Zerk Corporation at one point to kind of fool them. And that's where I started to get confused as to who was really behind it. Because I'm like, wait, if Circa's throwing these things away and the Blackguards are coming, what the hell? That's when I was really starting to think, I might have this wrong. Maybe I'm backing the wrong person if I think Ned Stark's getting out of this. Oh, oh, oh. No, no, that one's not too soon. That one's not too soon. (laughs) At least I don't think so. Um, 
All right, so I want to end this before we give our final thoughts with something I usually don't do, which is to read a full chunk of a book, um, which in this case is the after portion at the end of the book, effectively the epilogue, because this is the thing that I think does a fantastic job of showing just how well Claudia Gray got into the characters' heads, did that third-person limited, um, giving all this context to the characters. And this was actually the part that I had trouble getting. Like, I was good with most of the book. Like, I was zipping, zipping through the book, enjoying it, surprisingly so. I was like, hey, this is actually pretty good. This is cool. You know, by the end of it, I'm like, this was sweet. And then we get the after, and I'm like, oh. I remember Queen Shadow. I remember with Queen Shadow, they gave us some like 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 lead in and lead out that was all based in the the films. It was kind of like, ooh, okay, what are they gonna do? And they give us a scene that is something we don't see. It's kind of between frames, so to speak, in Phantom Menace here that choked me up. Yeah, this this um, is what made me think of Episode it. Three. I was like, you you're the chosen one, Anakin. Oh my god. Right. So. Uh, the story ends. Um, I think this is, again, this is a great example. So even if you haven't read the book, I think this will give you a great sense of the writing of it. Um, and if you have, then, you know, maybe this will give you the same uh, for Klimpness hearing me read it as, uh, as when you read it originally. Hopefully I will get through it. Queen Amidala entered the shrine, dipping her head so that her elaborate hairstyle wouldn't scrape the ceiling. When Obi-Wan looked up, she knelt carefully by his side. It's nightfall. Her voice was gentle, patient like a woman far older than her years. Are you ready? Am I ready to see my master consumed by the flames, to know I will never see him again? He thinks. Give me one more moment. Amandala pressed her hand to his forearm, then went back outside. Within minutes, Qui-Gon's pyre would be carried outside and burned. It was the proper end for a Jedi, and it would be accompanied by the greatest honors. Qui-Gon's death was the will of the Force, but Obi-Wan could reconcile himself to none of it. Qui-Gon lay on a white cloth, his face as placid as it had once been in the depths of meditation. Obi-Wan had chosen not to dress him in a new tunic, but to allow those at the funeral to see the burned mark where the Sith Lord's lightsaber had pierced him through. It was the only hint of the violence of Qui-Gon's death. The first Jedi killed by a Sith in a thousand years, he thought numbly. That fate should never have fallen to anyone. But if it had to happen, why didn't it happen to me instead of you? Obi-Wan remembered that, for the first few years of his apprenticeship, he and Qui-Gon hadn't gotten along, but he remembered it the same way he remembered dates in Jedi history, as flat facts, with little life to them. Instead, when Obi-Wan thought on his time as Qui-Gon's Padawan, he always thought of the years after that mission to Pajal, the years when they had become both partners and friends. He expected to go through the trials, to be knighted in the proper ceremony with Qui-Gon at his side, and for the two of them to remain friends for the rest of their lives. Instead, Obi-Wan had become a Jedi Knight that morning via a hasty field promotion. He would never again have Qui-Gon's advice, support, or companionship. In fact, his only inheritance from Qui-Gon was rather more complicated. He glanced to the door of the shrine. Though night was falling, Obi-Wan could make out the silhouette of little Anakin Skywalker. After Pajal, Qui-Gon's devotion to the prophecies had never faltered. Still, Obi-Wan would never have guessed that Qui-Gon would confidently identify the Chosen One, as a small, enslaved boy. Less would he have expected to be abruptly cast aside in favor of that same boy, a wound in his relationship with Qui-Gon that had only just begun to heal before his master had died. Obi-Wan understood Qui-Gon's reasons, but he hadn't shared his master's conviction that Anakin was the Chosen One. And yet, Obi-Wan thought, maybe this is as the Force wills it. Qui-Gon came to believe in the prophecies again in Pijal, 
where he first began arguing that the Jedi should push the Republic harder on combating slavery. Never had Qui-Gon stopped arguing this to anyone who would listen, but he had never betrayed his mandate, not even on Tatooine. If Anakin is the chosen one, and he keeps his promise to free the slaves, it will fulfill all of Qui-Gon's hopes. With his dying breath, Qui-Gon had asked Obi-Wan to train Anakin as a Jedi. Most Jedi Knights didn't become masters until years after they'd passed their own trials, the years during which they got to forge their own path. For Obi-Wan to take a Padawan after having been a Jedi Knight for a few hours was unprecedented, surely, possibly also unwise. But Obi-Wan had promised. It was the last thing he'd ever said to Qui-Gon, so it had to be true. I will train him, Master, he said, bowing his head low until it almost touched Qui-Gon's still hand. I will do everything for him that you would have done. Qui-Gon had faith that Anakin Skywalker was the Chosen One. Obi-Wan would have to find faith in it, too. Looking at Qui-Gon's face for the last time, Obi-Wan whispered, I choose to believe. Such a good, such a good way to go out, man. Uh, you know, I, I don't know much more we could say aside from uh, check this one out. I mean, if you haven't read the book yet and you just listen to this podcast and you think, oh, wow, they've covered it all. I don't need to read it. No. I mean, we barely even touched the slave uprising, uh, the rescue of uh, Rahara. Uh, when Rahara gets recaptured with facial recognition. Uh, and then they find out that there's no such thing as a former slave. You know, you're just uh, missing property. And then when she's sitting there trying to think of, you know, was I ever free? Was this my whole life? And I just thought of it. I mean, there's so much more to this story than what we've covered. And yet you should go out and check it out. Yeah. Like I said, this is one that, you know, initially I didn't find much interest in when I found out that it wasn't the story of Obi-Wan and Satine that plummeted even further. Not because of Claudia Gray, but because I just didn't think I'd be interested in this particular type of story with these particular characters that we've seen so much before. Only now, looking back on it, having read it, should never have doubted it, right? This was mm -hmm. Claudia Gray uh, rocking it again and gives us a canonical version of this relationship that is very human, very well explored, and with some great backdrop to it as well, some great human moments with other characters as well. So uh, definitely one to check out. If you're looking for earth-shattering, galaxy-shattering events, then no, this is not the Battle of Jakku or something. Um, in a lot of ways, it's a character study. But it's a character study with more of a through line of an action story and mystery to it and a political crisis than a lot of the other character study type books that we've had in the new story group canon and in that sense, I think it's going to appeal to a broader audience than some of the other ones that we've seen uh, in the recent past that maybe were so focused on the character study side that they didn't uh, play up sort of the Star Wars action-y, you know, swashbuckling side. Um, definitely one to check out, uh, even if you're someone who didn't necessarily appreciate the prequels all that much, because this may give you more of an appreciation for the dynamic of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan from the prequels and the Chosen One prophecy uh, to perhaps have you look at those a little bit differently. I'm not sure mm -hmm. that I would say it's a Stover effect, but it's no. pretty close. Um, it's it's not so much giving you a deeper understanding in a lot of ways, so much as it's uh, it's adding some flavoring on top of it. Uh, it mm -hmm. It's uh, it's what you might call uh, sprinkling a shaker of Claudia Gray onto mm. the prequels. Um, Salt as Gray. As opposed to a Stover effect. Instead of, instead of Salt Bay, it's Salt Gray. I, you know, it, it made me appreciate when Obi-Wan knelt down before his battle with Maul and meditate. 
just like Jin did. I mean, they both kind of had that moment where they were just like, okay, this is about to happen. And centering themselves in the force. I mean, you, you start to look back over everything again in a new light. Wait, 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 wait. When did Obi-Wan meditate before his battle with Maul? Is that Rebels you're thinking of? Uh, yeah, that was the one I was thinking okay. of. I was, and, then, I was like, and then Jin like, does it in the little chamber. all fired up. Right. No, I mean, and that's part of it, too, is because, like, you know, to to have that moment where he's like, this was the will of the force when when it happened, he wasn't ready for it. You know, and then, of course, he ends up becoming the first one at that time, they thought, to kill a Sith Lord in thousand years. Then again, he does do it later. And when he does do it, he does it like Jin did. You know, he meditates and he makes sure to take him down. He's going to not mess around this time. (laughs) Is he not the chosen one? Is he not supposed to destroy the Sith? Mm. He questions the others questioning it, which would not have been him before this story. Yeah, definitely one to check out. You're going to enjoy it. And even with us reading little chunks of it, you're still going to you know, see a lot of really awesome stuff uh, in terms of character development, um, uh, witticisms, uh, character exchanges, and so forth. Uh, we just grabbed a few favorites along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they even use the out of the frying pan into the fryer. I think they call it saucepan and stuff. I'm like, <gasps> out of the saucepan. That even had me say, like, what? They don't fry stuff in Star Wars. It's like the refresher in the restroom or the bathroom or that crapper. <laughs> oh yeah. Speaking Crap of crapper, instead of caffeine, we sh- we've come to the end. That's always sad. No, it's now, that not about the end. It's the finale. <laughs> I can't call it fucking end. Sorry. Anyway, pet peeve of mine. Stop renaming stuff whenever there's no reason to rename it. Right? No. I mean, that was that was something with with Chancellor Kajah or whatever. I was just like, do we have to have another leaders wedged in here? Like the leaders are the new going to the refresher. How many leaders are we going to have in a three year period? But I mean, that wasn't the case. But you start to feel that way when there's another new leader. <laughs> At least this one would have made some sense, I, I think. I don't know. I, I didn't go in and figure out exactly when the terms would be for other chancellors around them that have been mentioned. I, again, as I've said many times in many Q&A videos on YouTube and on Patreon-exclusive Q&A videos, uh, how does it feel to not be working on the Star Wars timeline gold anymore? I can actually read stuff, see things that might contradict and might be, uh, you know, uh, questionable that... I would have researched, but it's not my job anymore. The fact that I considered it a job was part of the problem. Because um, it stopped being fun. Um, right. Anyway, we're, we're getting far afield here. So uh, uh, lead us out here, Mark. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars 
stars beyond the films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's literally the best way to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starsreport, you get a free trial run of Audible to see what they're all about. In fact, you can get uh, that Dooku Lost Jedi or Jedi Lost right now, and you can explore that or any other book without uh, risk of being stuck with a book you might not like because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that now you're going to get me off that topic of stupid Star Wars words. Like, poodoo! Why are they using poodoo as if it means S-bomb, as if it means crap, as if it means poop? He says, It translates as fodder. That's what they eat. Fodder. Are you saying you're eating and then crapping and it's the same thing? Are you eating crap and then pooping crap? Or are you eating food and it comes out as food? (laughs) Is this Star Wars Chipotle? (laughs) Does it burn on the way out? That's a Johnny Cash pepper for you. Care for how many you eat? Get stuck with the Ring of Fire. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, it's Star Wars. We can't call it Chipotle. We'll call it. We'll call it like Pachote Cliff. <laughs> what? Nerf Polte. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love it. I love it. Oh God, I miss this. <laughs>